Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast, sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents-based study of American history, civics, and government for teachers, students, and citizens. Um, today's uh, crisis, our final crisis of the of the series, is the Iranian hostage crisis, and uh, we've got a grand finale panel here uh, uh, for the uh, for the webinar series. I'm happy to welcome um, back uh, David Alvis of Wofford College, Stephen Tootle of the College of the Sequoias, and Gregory Schneider of Emporia University. Gentlemen, thanks all for being here this morning. Appreciate it very much. So this is a fun one. Uh, it's fun for me in particular because I happen to remember this one. Um, and uh, it was a messy thing, a 444-day uh, hostage crisis um, that uh, ended at the moment Ronald Reagan was sworn in as president, which is interesting. Perhaps we can at some point talk about um, the significance of that. Um, but I, I, I'd like to start with your, your, your general thoughts on um, how this came about, uh, what were the circumstances that led to it, and I'd also love to hear your thoughts on uh, how successful you thought uh, President Carter was at dealing with this crisis at some point as well. So um, I'm going to just throw this open uh, for this grand, uh, grand finale uh, cage match of a panel here uh, <laughs> to, to see what, what, where you want to start with this, how do we think about it, what do you what do you find most interesting about it, and how can we, how can we understand it better, especially as teachers? So, anybody want to start? Feel free. How about Schneider starts, and I'll just disagree with whatever he says. <laughs> I'll start, but I'll start in a different way. I mean, I think what what this represents, in a way, and Carter kind of elucidates it in his State of the Union address. I mean, it represents a transition, really, in the foreign policy of the post-war American order from. The Cold War foreign policy, of course, that's still going on and deeply ingrained with the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979 to the Middle East imbroglio we found ourselves in really since the Iranian uh, revolution in 1979. And these two things intersect, not for the last time, certainly in the next decade or so until the late 1980s, um, in a way that... Um, is difficult for the United States to deal with. I mean, certainly Reagan struggles with the hostage taking in the Middle East, in Lebanon, and has no better answers than Jimmy Carter to the dilemma of Americans being held hostage uh, and would actually violate his own uh, views of trading for hostages in the Iranian uh, armed uh, Iran-Contra matter. Um, and in many respects, you know, it's a difficult thing for Americans to deal with, with these people being held hostage by radical Islamic groups in the Middle East. It also represents a transition from the Middle East being a kind of pawn in the Cold War, um, you know, with most of the more radical groups like the PLO, for instance, which were very much tied into the Soviet orbit, and some of the nationalist figures, starting with Nasser in Egypt in the 50s, uh, to um, Anwar Sadat in the late 70s being tied in with the Soviet orbit, too to, of course, the emergence of radical Islamic movements, the Muslim Brotherhood and others, which would soon uh, be important in Egypt, as well as, of course, the Ayatollah Khomeini in Iran. So it's a very transitory moment in uh, American foreign policy, and Carter speaks to it well, I think, in the State of the Union address, uh, at least in 1980. So let me throw a question back at you. I, I always 
look at Carter at this time as somebody who um, I felt like Nixon knew who he was in terms of foreign policy, right? Uh, and maybe we still don't know what that is, but at least Nixon seemed to know what he was doing. And then, uh, and then even Ford, I feel like, had, even though he was a very short presidency, he had a pretty clear vision of uh, how to, he would go about implementing like the a more human rights based foreign policy. And then, but I feel like Carter had not really thought through the implications of uh, of the whatever foreign policy views that he had, and he ended up being very reactionary. And so I always teach the Carter um, um, uh, the Carter administration on a as almost like a two track, which is, which is he wants to be this sort of human rights uh, foreign policy president, but when that doesn't um, comport with reality, uh, he has to he has to then return to being reactionary. Does, does that make sense? In other words, he keeps making these predictions based on how he thinks the world will react to his peace initiative. Uh, and that, that then he and then when it doesn't work, well now he has to do something. And uh, and so when something like the hostage crisis comes up, um, it ends up becoming a crisis. And I almost separate um, how he what he actually did, which when you look at the timeline of events in terms of how he reacted to the crisis. I, I, I look at that, that timeline of events and I say, well, that's that's actually pretty defensible. You know, you try to figure out what's going on, you enter into negotiations, you, you know, try a rescue attempt. In other words, that I sort of understand. But what where I give him lower marks is in the fact that he made it into a bigger crisis, that he seemed to be held captive by it in, in some ways. Um, and it didn't have to be the defining event that it was for those 444 days. Um, so I just thought I'd throw that out there to you guys and see what you uh, think of that. Also, yeah, I think it also, too, makes sense to look at the different way, the, the, the different perceptions, right, about how these the hostage crisis is handled between looking at the difference between Carter and Reagan in terms of their role in American politics in general. And one of the things that you see with Carter is Carter is sort of um, attempting to refound that New Deal coalition. And his, his, the major uh, focus for Carter, right, is clarity, uh, a clear sense of purpose. If we just, if we get back to basics, right, uh, of the New Deal coalition, we can restore it, right, we can speak with clarity, we can speak with principle, and all we need to do is sort of clear away um, uh, the, the rubble, right, uh, uh, of the past few years. And so, you know, the, it, you know his, one of his famous lines, right, is uh, something like, if the trumpet has a muffled sound, who will answer the call? But the problem with the Iranian hostage crisis is that it's precisely the kind of complex situation that doesn't have a sort of easy answer, doesn't have, you know, clear uh, principles. And in some ways, you know, Carter, uh, he, he, I mean, in some ways, he, one feels sorry for him because, you know, it's a, it's a series of accidents and mistakes 
that um, uh, a, a series of accidents that really, in some ways, make the administration uh, look bad. Um, but on the other hand, the, the, the American public perception of those mistakes is uh, Carter lacks uh, clear principles. He lacks uh, a clear understanding. And in some ways, right, the Iranian hostage crisis, as Steve pointed out, um, really sort of makes Carter look like he's hostage to events rather than being able to control events. And the reason that, that has a devastating impact on Carter because Carter's big promise is I can, we can control these events, right? We can, we can pass an energy bill without all the uh, special interests if we just control it, right, and, and act on first principles. And you know the Iranian hostage crisis kind of shows that uh, Carter is um, is not in control, and for him that was particularly devastating. Whereas there's a different perception when Reagan comes, I think, and that is that here's someone with a clear sense of principles, but is dealing with a complicated matter. Yeah, the, uh, 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 the question I was going to throw out, which was again. Um, something like this I, I remember a popular view i'm glad you pointed out the distinction between how the how the public thought of carter and sort of what the reality was but a, a popular view uh, 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 or opinion of this was that carter was kind of weak and soft in foreign policy and that and that the iranians uh the college students and, and radicals who who captured the hostages and, and held them were emboldened by carter's perceived weakness and softness and that and I don't know whether that's true or not, but that narrative is is bolstered by the fact, again, that somebody like Reagan, who was known as sort of being a hard ass, yeah, and had promised to be hard in foreign policy, is inaugurated and they're immediately set free at that moment. So, yeah, but but I always find it interesting as well. Part of me doubts. I just lost your audio, Chris. Am I the only one who just lost Chris's audio? No, I lost it too. Okay. Well, let me, let me I want to ask you guys a question though, Alice and Schneider. Um, how do you think it complicates matters that, that, that Carter's dealing with or doesn't know if he's dealing with a state actor or a non-state actor? Because I always sort of thought of it as Reagan and Carter didn't quite know how to deal with non-state actors. And uh, Reagan ends up maybe handling it better, but I thought... Uh, and maybe you guys can think of this. Is there another example, maybe in the, <clears throat> let's say, Ford or Nixon administration, where Ford or Nixon have to deal with a non-state actor where they handle it better? Because um, I couldn't well, think of one off the top of my head. Go back, go back even further, Steve, because I think you have, you know, the, the situation in Iran obviously is a product of, of the American decision to participate in the overthrow of Mossadegh uh, in 1953 uh, and install the Shah in power. And, you know, you're talking about a culture that still remembers Alexander's invasion pretty well. The Americans, of course, forget this in the 30 years or 25 years after that event, but um, the Iranians don't. And especially in the 70s, as the economy begins to collapse in Iran, you have the uh, Shah who's getting billions of dollars of military aid, starting, I think, with Nixon, if I'm not mistaken. Um, and the United States is willing to go along with this because, of course, Iran is clearly important for us as a listening post and as a base of operations against the Soviet Union, going back to the U-2 spy plane in the 1950s. 
I mean, here, the United States has always had difficulty, I think, in the post-World War II era of dealing with revolutions, which, you know, we're a revolutionary country, but we've had our troubles dealing with, you know, the, the, the revolutionary actors, like, let's say, the Ayatollah, who was a revolutionary, at least ideologically, and the type of revolutions that they bring into, uh, into shape. And we didn't understand fully the, the feelings of the Iranian people, of course, towards the Shah. Carter magnifies this by praising the Shah just a few months earlier than what on Jan New Year's Eve of 1978, I think, when he goes That's there and famous. gives a toast to him. And then two months later, he's removed. And then Carter, of course, exacerbated through his humanity by allowing the Shah into the United States for medical treatment, which, of course, is a spark to the, the takeover. I don't know if Reagan would have handled that any differently or any better. I don't think American presidents were too too good throughout the Cold War years at handling these kind of non-state revolutionary movements, which is what this was, or non-state actors. Let's say Reagan certainly had the principles behind which you could bring a, a, a greater hostility, aggressive policy towards the Soviet Union. But Carter starts it. Carter is Carter changes his policy in the speech in 1980, enunciating the Carter Doctrine, and, and later and saying that he's going to you know, withhold, uh, sanction the United States, uh, Soviet Union for their invasion of Afghanistan and build up weapon systems like the MX missile and the B-1 bomber. So, I mean, it's Carter who initiates this policy that Reagan inherits in 1980. Um, you have to give Carter some credit there for recognizing that it's not as, um, his hopes for a more peaceful world were floundering, certainly, by 1980 and changing his policy. He wasn't hard-headed enough. As far as to being captive, I mean, what else is there to do? His rescue attempt, while inspired, I guess, uh, certainly reflected the cutbacks in American military budgets over the previous three years, the Vietnam malaise, let's say, the fact that we're dealing now with a different area of the world than Europe, where most of our forces were trained for and, you know, used to training and all of our uh, equipment and the like was predicated on. So the sandstorms of the desert uh, were not so good for the for the operation, of course. And he's dealing with a situation in which he has to perceive as if he's doing something or else even further weaken himself in the eyes of the public. And of course, his approval numbers go up uh, after the failure uh, in the desert, just as Gerald Ford's approval numbers went up after the disaster of the Mayaguez incident in 1976, which um, turns out to be a, a you know, the, the people were freed from the Cambodian communists before the Marines even landed there. Um, so, you know, these are the problems that the, the presidents of this era are dealing with. And, you know, Reagan would be flummoxed too, uh, and feel just as much a, a, of a sympathy with the hostages and just as much interest in getting them out no matter what as, as um, Carter did, certainly. Oh, but, oh sorry, I didn't Go ahead. No, can you hear me okay? I just want to make sure you can still hear me. And I want to make sure David is still. Is David yeah, I'm, still? I'm back. I'm back. Okay, good, thanks. Go ahead, please, Stephen, please. Sorry. Oh, I was just going to say there's something rather strange, though, that I, uh, and maybe this is just my impression. You guys can correct it if you disagree. But I always thought it was very strange that Carter had these speeches or events where his, uh, the immediate reaction would be very positive. You know, the, the, the so-called malaise speech or the action in the desert. But upon further reflection, Americans would say, I actually don't like that. Whereas uh, in the case of Reagan, it was almost the opposite, where um, uh, he, he would give a speech 
that wasn't maybe immediately popular, but the wisdom of it would 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 occur to people after thinking about it. I wonder if he, if any of the other panelists have, uh, had ever noted that either with or maybe I'm wrong about one or both, but uh, do do either of you guys or all, all three of you sort of feel the same way about this pattern of Carter where uh, you do something, everybody seems to like it, and then upon second thought they think, that, that actually wasn't so great. Um, well, that might, it, might be, it might be that, you know, look, Carter's idealism didn't, it, it, it didn't work, and, uh, and it, seemed to be, it seemed to me that over time he would give these high uh, sort of high-minded, idealistic speeches about the new way of dealing with foreign, with foreign policy that, um, that, that that required a softer approach, uh, and and then you know you have this series of <coughs> culminating in the Iranian hostage crisis, and it's it, I think step by step it's easy for people to say, uh, you know, the it sounds good, but it just doesn't work. Whereas Reagan, I think, comes in and. Uh, and uh, Greg, you know, by, let, me, let me say, Greg. By the way, I'm so. I, this is a side of you I've not heard before. You know, you're 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 you know, sort of holding Reagan and Carter up uh, on the same level. I don't want to overdo it, but uh, but it seems like <laughs> Reagan 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 came in kind of hard nosed in this, at least in his language with regard to foreign policy, and people still weren't persuaded of that. Ironically, after four years of Carter. But but events tended to prove his hard nosed approach to foreign policy correct. Every time, you know, he would say we need to take a hard line here, or we need to take these steps, or these sorts of things. People would have a negative reaction to it because they were a little frightened of that kind of talk. But then the Soviets or the Russians or or another player actor in the Middle East would take an action that seemed to vindicate Reagan's hard line stance on things. That's my general view of the, of the question. But Greg or David, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Well, I mean, in some ways, you know, you see in Carter going back to the, on the one hand, he wants this um, a sort of clarity of principle so that he can uh, uh, occupy a, a, a high position of leadership. So he wants the, to be able to articulate a clarity of principles, but also, too, usually in the same speech, he would also go about saying there are no easy answers, right? And so, you know, and he, in some ways, right, Carter's, Big thing is to focus on being um, uh, uh, being honest and direct, right? About all of the complexities of dealing with, you know, uh, whether it's the Iranian hostage crisis or trying to deal with domestic policy. He, he would kind of lay it all on the table. These are the problems. These are the complications. And so, in some ways, right, his call for sort of simple principles gets muffled. At the same time, in the honesty that he has about uh, the complexity of uh, both international affairs, right, and, and domestic policy, what I think you see in Reagan is Reagan's rhetoric is there are easy answers, here they are, and then when it comes to the complexity, deal with those quietly outside of the scope of public uh, of the public arena, and I mean that's exactly what gets him into the. Um, uh, into the Iran-Contra scandal. So the, in some ways, right, it's, it's a, very much a difference of their, of their styles in approaching these matters. David, that's an excellent point. I would also add with Carter that he's a moralizer, right? He's the preacher in chief as much as anything else. I mean, he's comfortable excoriating the American public in many ways for their 
uh, as he says in 1977 at Notre Dame, their inordinate fear of communism uh, as he's seeking to move the United States beyond the kind of bipolar world of the Cold War. And then Stephen had brought up the famous Malay speech, uh, the crisis of confidence speech, and I think he, in which he wears a sweater, Mr. Rogers-like, and you know urges Americans to turn down the radiator or turn down the thermostat. Is there, or is that a different speech? But in the same focus, you know, he's lecturing Americans about wanting less, and Americans don't want less; they want more. They're optimistic, typically. And they might agree deep down with what Carter's saying. They might look inward enough to, to be concerned about the way the energy crisis is playing out and uh, all of the other issues. But deep down, they want more. They want somebody who's an optimist. Carter's much too willing to tell the truth as the way the, the pastor is on a Sunday morning, you know, that you're sinners uh, and that you have to change. And what I like about his speeches here is he's not so much doing that. He's laying out, I think, uh, you know, the concerns about the, the, the changes in the Middle East in a way that makes him much more Reagan-esque, I guess, because it is Carter who shifts the ground away from the Vietnam malaise to a much more aggressive approach towards the Soviets after, of course, the failures of the previous three years to take the Soviets seriously. Right. Well, Greg, that's really, that's really interesting. Um, and again, uh, when I teach the the Malay speech uh, in, in class, you know, we go through it very carefully. But it's you know, look, there may actually have been a kind of malaise, or at least some. Uh, not, I don't. I don't. I think part of the misfortune was the choice of the word malaise. Uh, you know, there were some uncertainties in the 1970s. Gas prices were in flux. You know, I remember my dad filling up the. Uh, Volkswagen and just swearing up a storm because the, the price of gasoline jumped, you know, to 70 cents or something like that. Uh, but so there were, you know, there were these sorts of things going on. But, you know, for crying out loud, don't tell people there's a malaise. That's right. your point, Greg. You don't, you know, that's not what the commander in chief is supposed well, to he never He never uses the term malaise. He never yeah, uses the word malaise. Christ so. confidence, right? Yeah. Yeah. But the, also, too, the other big mistake is to put the blame on the American people as opposed to taking it on yourself, right? That's the, uh, that's the other kind of complaint about the crisis of confidence being. Mm -hmm. So, you know, for Reagan, right, the approach is, right, we're responsible, right? The blame doesn't belong. The American people are held hostage by a government that doesn't really serve their interests. Mm -hmm. So it's our responsibility to fix that. Any of you guys read the, uh, the Onion book uh, called Our Dumb Century? Uh, no. Fake newspaper headlines from throughout the 20th century, but uh, it, it's uh, the one for uh, Decision 1980 has two pictures of Carter and Reagan. And you probably find this online, but it says uh, Decision 1980, Carter and Reagan. Uh, it has a picture of Carter that says, "Let's talk better mileage," and then a picture of Reagan that says, "Kill the bastards." Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, you know, on, on the, uh, the larger point about, um, or, or point that Greg, I think, and David, actually all of you were making earlier about uh, um, why people had the immediate, immediate impression that Carter's approach was good and kind of had the opposite approach for Reagan. Uh, I wonder, again, if some of that doesn't have to do with the fact that we, although the, you know, Greg, as you pointed out earlier, the Carter's transitioning, transitioning us in terms of foreign policy away from the bipolar uh, Cold War uh, way of thinking about things. It is still uh, at the end of the Cold War, or the Cold War is still going on, and 
you know, 30 plus years of living in constant fear of instant annihilation, uh, it seems to me cumulatively, cumulatively sort of had the effect, at least in the public mind to a certain extent, of, of wanting to take a softer approach and not being, not taking a particular action that might, you know, persuade one side to push the big red button. Um, and it, again, thinking of Reagan, I remember, you know, there were a lot of concerns on the part of people when Reagan was uh, elected that, you know, he's kind of a maverick, he's a little unpredictable, he's so hard-nosed about things that this could be the end, that Reagan could actually either push the button or take a, a step, uh, a sort of precipitous step that would that would cause the Soviets to react in line. And I'm thinking of even popular culture, like uh, I remember this video by Genesis, I don't know if you remember it, called Land of Confusion, and back when MTV played videos, do you remember this, Greg? And yeah. They portrayed Reagan as this, you know, guy who had nightmares at night. He was close to pushing the red button in his sleep, and he was kind of incompetent. And there was that that fear. And uh, but I think Carter, you know, uh, domestically, you know, he didn't do a good job of bolstering uh, uh, confidence, in, at least in the senses that we were talking about before. But but it seems to me that people weren't worried that Carter was going to push. Uh, at least the Soviets over the edge and and lead to some sort of nuclear conflict or even expanding uh, conventional conflicts, um, which a lot of people were concerned about at the time. One important point there, uh, Chris, is that up until the debate, the only debate held in the election, which was only a week before election day, Carter was ahead uh, for the reasons that you said at the outset, that Reagan was feared as a kind of cowboy, that he was too conservative, that he was not mainstream enough. Uh, and he puts a lot of that to rest during the debate. Um, but even with the problems Carter had in 1980, which were immense, inflation, um, interest rates reaching, you know, 18% because of the Fed's policy, which Reagan keeps, to uh, Paul Volcker's appointment, which was, of course, a brilliant decision on Carter's part, but cost him politically uh, to damage, to get rid of inflation, um, along with the hostage crisis, which saw Carter, you know, being kind of like Herbert Hooverisk and not leaving the White House for uh, to campaign and not going out of the White House, but focusing intently on just that. This all of that damage. Um, Carter was still ahead a week before the election and the poll shifted. And, you know, the result was actually a pretty decent victory for Reagan um, a week later. But I mean, there were there are certainly fears of that. And that hurt Reagan, certainly in his kind of harsh approach towards the Soviet Union, which this has been challenged too by historians who've worked on Reagan um, and his view about nuclear weapons, especially. Um, but Carter, you know, Carter at least gets the hard line after some failures. You know, Carter's Carter's attempt to kind of promote human rights leads to the Iranian Revolution in some respects. It also leads to the Sandinistas taking power in Nicaragua. Um, not to say that there's lots of good things to say about the Somoza government, but at least they're not communist. Uh, and you know, that's something that. Um, Carter was blamed for a lot by certainly the neoconservatives. Gene Kirkpatrick uh, in Commentary Magazine wrote about this and wound up voting for Carter still, but then was appointed as uh, UN Sec Ambassador by Reagan. But in her great article, Dictatorships and Double Standards, about what Carter's flaws were in attacking our allies and equating them with the Soviet Union uh, in many respects. But I think, you know, Carter deserves some credit, at least, only this on this matter, I think, of recognizing the threat that the twin aspects of this revolution and the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan mean for American foreign policy. Oh, that's great. Um, I got a question privately from Thomas. Do you think Carter's soft policy 
has to deal has to uh, has has to deal or has to do perhaps with previous Cold War presidents and and their failures. So, can uh, I broaden this question a little bit to say how does Carter how does Carter fit into the tradition of previous approaches, foreign policy approaches of of, of presidents, and uh, did Carter see himself as making up for some of the mistakes that that Nixon perhaps and even Johnson had made as presidents? I guess I'd take it in order and say, in some ways, he does resemble Truman at first, in that Truman had to sort of stumble about until he finally settled on a maybe a Cold War policy in his last year in office. Uh, I, I don't think that it's like Eisenhower at all. Uh, I think Eisenhower had a very clear uh, vision of how to he wanted to wage the Cold War, and he executed that vision with remarkable, probably the only remarkable consistency of the entire Cold War. Um, and then I'd say it, it does re resemble Kennedy in the sense that um, we always give Kennedy credit for being a cri good crisis manager of a bunch of crises that he created. Uh, and in that sense, you know, we give Carter credit for eventually, you know, by 1980, he had a pretty good foreign policy <laughs> with the Cold War. Um, Johnson, I guess the similarity might be that you perceived as being captive of events because uh, because of a lack of vision. Uh, and then Nixon, I don't know what he was trying to do. It's too hard. Uh, you know, um, Ford, uh, you know, not in office long enough. But I mean, that's that's kind of the the briefest of overviews of how I would put him into a context with the his immediate pre predecessors. I would go much more short term and just say that both, um, well, Carter, Nixon, Ford, Nixon, Ford, Carter, in that order, I guess, were all the detente presidents, right? That they all continued that policy. They all sought improved relations with the Soviet Union, even as the Soviet Union was expanding its reach um, through revolutions, through victories of communist governments in the in the so-called third world areas, at a place greater than any other point in its history. And, the, and in some respects, that was because of the inflation, of course, in the world at the time, which made oil prices high, which the Soviets traded for hard currency to buy weapons. And this was an important fact in this expansion of communism in the 1970s, which occurred because of the failure in Vietnam and of the fact that um, the United States had lost its will uh, to intervene in the world. The American public was in a very isolationist mood. And Carter inherits this, you know, to be fair. Carter is, even if Carter wanted to do more uh, towards the Soviets in the world, which of course he doesn't, because he wants to build on this kind of north-south rather than east-west division in the world at the time, Carter would have been hamstrung by the fact that the American public just wasn't interested. I mean, this is very similar to Obama in the wake of the Iraq War, um, and, and you know, and the spread of ISIS in the Middle East and the things that occurred under Obama's watch. Um, the American public wasn't interested in this as much, even as it came here. Um, certainly in attacks on, on our soil. So in many respects, I think Carter faces this dilemma that certainly Nixon and Ford did not immediately. And Carter's instincts are to react by focusing on different ways of approaching detente, including continuing arms control negotiations and getting SALT II ratified, which he wanted to do, as well as maybe seeking to move the country towards a, a much more 
poverty versus developed world context, which could have changed the face of American foreign policy away from the Cold War. But he's, you know, as everybody has said, Stephen and David, I think he's captive by events. You know, events keep pushing him away from that. And certainly the Iranian revolution does, the hostage crisis does, but then the Soviets' aggressiveness in Afghanistan is the, the kind of the icing on the cake for him. Can I ask a quick uh, just you know, just one, I mean, one other comment too is to think about think about Carter in light of his Democratic predecessors. So, you know, for the Democratic Party, ever since uh, 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 FDR, the the way that you held the two wings of the party together, the southern wing and the northern wing of the party, was the northern wing got um, uh, the social programs that it wanted. And the southern wing got anti-communism right? I mean, or uh, 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 containment, right? And this was kind of the way that you held the two wings of the party together, right? The, you know, the South didn't really care so much about um, uh, social programs as they cared about the, uh, the containment policy or anti-communism. And North or Northeastern liberals didn't really care about the anti-communism, but they liked the social programs. And so the thing is, is that right by, by the time you get to Carter, right, that southern wing of the party has gone uh, Republican. So in some ways you can see what he's thinking, and that is why don't we purge that element of the party because we don't need it anymore because we're not going to win. You're not, you're not going to win big in the South. And, but, um, and then emphasize, right, uh, the um, emphasize more the domestic social policy side um, by in some ways retreating from this aggressive uh, containment policy. And it's clear by the time I think you get to the Iranian hostage crisis um, that that's not, that's not an, an easy fix to the problems, right, with the, uh, with the New Deal coalition by the time you get to Carter. And so the, um, in, in, in some ways it isn't kind of, it isn't purging the party of its um, uh, elements that will make it more unified. That's fascinating. I wanted. I did want to ask, and maybe we can we can answer it now, or or skip it and circle back to it. I did want to ask about the uh, the influence of that shift in the parties, David, on the on the election in 1980 as well. If that had a major effect on uh, on Carter's um, or on Reagan's uh, victory, how that perhaps uh, realignment of things has an effect. But I had a specific question, actually, maybe uh, for Greg. But if anybody wants to jump in, please feel free. Because Greg, you mentioned the, you reminded us that um, uh, Nixon, Ford, and Carter are the, are the detente presidents. Did detente mean the same thing to Carter as it meant to Nixon? It seems to me that they're they both use the language of detente, but I've always thought that it meant something very different, or at least Carter and Nixon had different ends in mind as they employed detente. I think that's accurate. I think, though, that on the basic premises of detente, which is now that you live in a multipolar world order that, you know, can't be totally manipulated anymore by the bipolarity of the Cold War. Um, you know, you have OPEC, uh, which is a new emerging phenomenon, and the Middle East is going to be more powerful as a result. You have the common market in Europe. You have Japan's emergence as an industrial power. Um, I think all of those things, they all accept in many ways. And then, of course, Nixon's great achievement of opening China um, and then Carter fulfilling the long sought goal after Mao's death of normalizing relations with China, which he does in 1979. All of these things were 
very common to the presidencies of the 70s, as was, of course, the continued negotiations with the Soviet Union on grain, trades of food and uh, farm commodities, on uh, arms control, which, which Carter does as well. You know, it's funny that Carter clamps down on, you know, the, the grain uh, exchanges and trade with the Soviets, which makes him ver very vulnerable in the 1980 election to the farm bloc of the Midwest, who... Um, Oh, Reagan hammers him over who, this. Who is won by Reagan. And then right. Reagan then reverts back to a trading grain to the Soviet Union, right. even though he's the hardliner, right. um, as it turns out. So, I mean, in, in many respects, that that has a political cost to Carter um, in, a, in a large way, too. But um, Carter, I think Carter's consistent enough on detente to be labeled very similar in his goals. Like I said, the big change in Carter is just his shift to the north-south position. And it could be partly, too... You know, Carter's a new Democrat in a way. He's not a new dealer. He's not, he's fiscally conservative, probably the most fiscal conservative president since Eisenhower. Um, he wants to control the budgets, which are runaway. He wants to deregulate industries like railroads, uh, airlines, trucking, which he achieves. Um, you know, he's, he's in favor of controlling spending as much as possible. He, you know, he doesn't go along with the liberal wing of his party on certain measures for jobs creation and those sorts of things. So, I mean, he's, he's, very, he's very much a conservative fiscally um, on economic matters and a budget hawk, which makes him kind of unpopular. That's why you get Ted Kennedy running against him or challenging him in 1980. Uh, it wasn't because of Iran hostage crisis. It was because of the economic uh, problems and the fact that Carter wasn't really representative of the New Deal liberal tradition uh, in, that, in that period. Um, Anyway, I'm rambling on, but those are things that I think distinguish him. But I think for the most part, detente is pretty similar among all three presidents, with the, with the exception of means to get there. Oh, that's great stuff. David, are you going to, David, Stephen, you going to? Well, I guess I just, I think, I, I, I always put Nixon in this sort of special category. Is I, I think um, my impression is that Nixon was still trying to win. He was still trying to achieve victories in a, um, in some kind of zero-sum game that where that would eventually end up with the Soviet Union losing, and um, um, sometimes I think, uh, and I, I don't know what I don't I don't think that's what Carter's game was. I don't know if Carter was trying to win the Cold War, um, and so uh, I, I I guess I'd have to think about this more. But I, um, and then the other thing I. Um, the other thought was we we breezed past this um, a couple times with the um, Reagan in the South, but I, I would just point out that Carter carried the South in '76, and in particular, he overwhelmingly carried the um, the kind of uh, what you call uh, white working class voters in the South. And in 1980, um, Reagan doesn't win those voters outright, but he does split them, but it's still not, um, it's, it's not like, uh, I mean, people make it seem like the solid South for the Democrats just switch, uh, uh, which is certainly not the case. And, uh, and by the way, they also, uh, they also vote for Clinton in 92. So it's, it's, you know, the typical version of how the solid South is described in the uh, it, it is, it's, it's not quite as solid as, uh, upon closer inspection. Um, 
Yeah. The other thing about Carter is this kind of moralism um, makes you think. Um, make, it, it makes you think that what his goal was was to get people to act differently, rather than, like I said, uh, to destroy. It. So one of my uh, old professors would, would describe Carter's foreign policy as a reward enemies, punish friends. <laughs> And um, which which is uh, uh, which is what leads to this kind of reactionary foreign policy until uh, uh, 1980. The other thing I'd say about his 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 moralism is it led him to do very bizarre things. You know, he made enemies he didn't have to make. I've you know, I, I always think about the, it's a small incident, but in many ways, these little, there are these little moments from the Carter presidency where you say, like, I can't believe he did that. And I'm, um, I'm sure most of you are familiar with the story about the White House tennis courts uh, ten, uh, schedule. That's maybe the more famous one. But I, always, I also think about how he treated Tip O'Neill at the inaugural, which is he decided that he was going to use his own inaugural ball uh, to as an opportunity to uh, uh, settle Tip O'Neill's hash and teach him who's boss. And so he ended up putting him at a table like outside on the balcony or something. <laughs> and, and you just think, who does that? You know, the, the very you take the the person who should be your most most important ally um, in the house, and you and you decide it's a great idea. On the night of your inauguration, to to settle his hash, and uh, just it's bizarre um, making enemies where he doesn't where he doesn't need to. Yeah, Reagan um, certainly didn't do that. Right. Yeah. So, I'm sure, but if somebody else wants to tell a tennis court story, you're welcome to because that one's that one's well, the same so, story anyway. Sometimes there's just dumb luck. I mean, think of think of this. Go back counterfactually and say, what if Reagan had won the Republican nomination in 1976, which he comes very close to doing. And Ford magnanimously invites him to the stage and allows him to give a speech, uh, which he does. And some of the people in the crowd were alleged to have said, we, we nominated the wrong guy because of Reagan's ability to communicate and deliver kind of perfunctory remarks that he did uh, at that time. And just think if Reagan would have won in 76. There wouldn't have been no Reagan revolution. Um, you know, first off, you had a Democratic majority, huge Democratic majority in Congress, um, which Reagan would have had to work with. At least Reagan had the Senate for his first six years in office uh, as Republican. Reagan worked well with, with um, uh, Tip O'Neill, unlike Carter. Carter didn't work well with the Democrats in the Congress at all. In fact, he, they hated him and vice versa. Carter was kind of arrogant in that respect um, in his relationship with the Democrats. So think of, think of what the problems Reagan would have faced. Um, it would have been very difficult for him to propagate the idea of an arms buildup in only a year after the end of the Vietnam War. He probably would have faced the Iran hostage situation if all events came to pass the way they did. And of course, you can't know that because Reagan might have changed those events. Who knows? But the inflationary spiral would have probably happened and continue to happen in the late 70s. And sometimes there's dumb luck, you know, allies help. So Carter didn't have a very strong Western alliance, but Reagan did with the election of Margaret Thatcher, certainly with Pope John Paul II's uh, coron uh, coronation, is that right? But the, the, the arrival of Pope John Paul II in the fall of 78. I mean, all of these sorts of things play a huge role 
in helping Reagan pursue policies towards victory over communism. You know, his famous line is the Cold War, how does the Cold War end? We win, they lose, um, which, is, which is very much, a, you know, the Reagan view on that sort of thing. So Carter has bad luck, bad timing, but Reagan would have faced the same problems of timing if he had won in 76. He's fortunate to some degree to win when he does. Those are all great points. But just quick, just one quick thought, Greg. You, you mentioned Reagan's. How does the Cold we, How does the Cold War end? We win, they lose. And just to circle back quickly to the point uh, Stephen was making uh, on detente, uh, Carter. It seems to me. I don't know about Nixon so much. I'm actually not quite sure about this yet. But Nick uh, Carter seemed. If you had asked Carter the same question, how does the Cold War end? It seemed that Carter had bought into the idea that uh, at, toward the end of historical you know, progression, the Soviet Union, communism, certainly Soviet Union probably was a permanent fixture. It was here to stay, that had been settled by history. And now we need to, uh, again, detente means to, norm, to accept the normalization of, of the existence of the Soviet Union. And since it's a normal aspect of our world relations, now perhaps that helps explain his pivot, as you were saying nicely earlier about to, you know, to the north-south uh, distinctions. Well, I think, Chris, just to make a, a, a concrete example just occurred to me of the difference. And you could look at the SALT-1 treaty versus the SALT-2 treaty and the role of the multiple independent reentry vehicles. So when, when Nixon was negotiating the SALT-1 treaty, he knew that this is a worthless treaty because we're, we're, we're developing the technology and we have the technology to put multiple warheads on each missile. So we're going to pretend that we're doing something. Uh, meanwhile, we're actually going to escalate, the, uh, we're actually escalating the Cold War while we're pretending to, uh, to de-escalate it. Carter, after the whole world knows about MERV technology, still pursues the SALT II treaty. And I guess I would ask my other two panelists, if, like, why did he do that? You know, like, what was the point? Why was this? And I it just, I look at Carter's action there, and I'm just, I'm flabbergasted. I don't, maybe you guys have better answers than I do, but that never made sense to me. Well, so if you're a modern U.S. historian, Steve, as you know, then you're obsessed with acronyms and stuff for, you know, so you have AAA, NRA, WPA, SALT, MERVs, um, IRBMs, ICBMs, the whole kit and caboodle. And if you were somebody like me who was obsessed with missiles and stuff growing up, then most of the SALT negotiations were over missile launchers. That that the basic premise was not so much to, MERV technology was happening and was going to develop regardless. So it wasn't so much to cut back ICBMs, it was to cut back what launched them. Uh, and that was the focal point of a lot of the SALT, both the SALT treaty as well as the SALT II negotiations and treaties as well was the number of missile launchers because the Soviets didn't have hardened silos. They moved them around in the backs of trucks and other things. Um, so the missile launchers were much more determinative in what they went along with. I think that's that's what I remember mostly from it, if I remember am remembering correctly. That's fascinating. For Carter, though, it is, I think, important to point out, though, as, as Stephen uh, raised this question, right? For Carter, consistency is really important, right? Um, because there's a lot more at stake for him being, to be consistent uh, than there is uh, for Reagan. Because if you remember, and Greg was talking about this earlier, you know, when when Carter comes in, uh, there's a there's a real there's a promise that 
uh, we're going to have a rebirth, right, of the Democratic Party. We're going to purge all of these uh, special interests from the party. It's going to be reborn. And Carter is kind of the perfect embodiment of that, right? He's a reborn Christian. He actually gets reborn about 32 times during his presidency, right? <laughs> um, and this is going to be a, finally a cleansing of the party. And, you know, we, we raised earlier the question, why would he shake down Tip O'Neill right at the beginning? And that is because Tip O'Neill embodies, you know, the, the, what, the, the, what the New Deal has become, right? the New Deal coalition has become, and that is this body of... Uh, this this sort of devouring uh, beast of special interests, and Carter's going to purge that in order to bring the you know the, us back to the original church, and and it made the the rebirth right makes perfect sense. But then the thing is is that for Carter right you can't be contradictory. You you know you have to insist continually on consistency of of the message. Yeah. And that that's hard to do, right? When the when you you're dealing with complex foreign policy situations that require you to constantly adjust, you know, go from going from negotiation with the Soviet Union to taking the hard line that the Carter Doctrine uh, takes. And so the the problem for him is being able to adapt the message to his actual the actual practice of governing. I think Reagan Reagan right speaks also to with a great deal of clarity of rhetoric, but he works very hard to make sure that all the complexity is worked out in the shadows, right? Yeah, it's a great way to put it. It's a great way to put it. John Gaddis in his book on the Cold War, um, his chapter on this era is called Actors, in which he argues that Reagan, Pope John Paul II, and um, Gorbachev all had theatrical training. And that plays a big role, I think, in, in you know, their ability to adapt, uh, to, be, um, to be somewhat adaptable uh, as, as policymakers rather than, as David just raised, I think, very well, Carter's kind of stringent, less ability to adapt, let's say. Let me throw out an alternative theory, and it might be stupid because I think, I'm, I think, I'm, I think it's original with me, so it might be crazy. But um, I was thinking about... Uh, the fact that Carter was an engineer and liked to think about things scientifically. And I've been thinking about this a lot lately because of, uh, I don't know, kind of nature of truth and why bother studying history if you can just look it all up on your phone. And, and um, the it, it, scientists versus people in the humanities approach tr truth in a different way. And this matters especially for Carter because Carter wanted to be the big truth teller. And I think about what, what does it mean to tell the truth if you are somebody trained in the sciences? And somebody trained in the sciences, there's this body of knowledge and then um, that you're adding truth onto, right? And, and if you're an engineer, it's, a, you're, there, it's, a, it's this long, complex problem that is true until the entire system collapses and that's where we get the term paradise shift, shift from, right? And I always thought of Carter as being somewhat in that way, which is he thinks he, he knows the, what the formula is, but he keeps encountering a world that his formula doesn't, doesn't explain. And, and so in a way, you know, you go from being, uh, you go to being a rigid and reactionary, whereas um, the nature of truth and maybe, and when you said actors, this is what, 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 uh, what triggered this in, in me, but uh, 
But you think about what truth is when you're in the humanities. Think about how Calvin Coolidge described the nature of truth. That is, you're seeking to tell the whole story in context. And when, you, when you're able to tell the whole story in context, the way that Alvis just described Reagan, right, uh, is uh, uh, then you're telling the big picture truth and then working out the details later. But it, in a way, it, it, in some ways, these terms that we use like rigid versus harsh or, um, uh, you know, um, which one of these guys was the real hardliner? Well, which one was flexible? Well, turns out Reagan was very flexible with implementation. You know, uh, let's work this out. Let's work out the details later. Um, but he was very rigid, but he, or I guess the other classic essay would be the hedgehog and the fox. Mm -hmm. You know, that Reagan is the hedgehog. <laughs> uh, um, but I, if you, if you call, keep calling yourself a truth teller, you, you better have a, a, a well-developed or have the ability to describe the truth to people. You better be a good actor. You better be a good storyteller. I think that, that's, a, that's a great point. By the way, Reagan could tell the truth, but not, he didn't always tell it directly and bluntly. He could often tell a joke or a story, and people would get it. <laughs> you know what I mean? He had that Lincoln-like ability to do that. Uh, Carter didn't seem to have that ability. Carter had to be truthful and bluntly truthful at all times. I had always thought it was because he thought that would, that would perhaps win the confidence of the American people if he was always perfectly honest with them. But it may have something to do with what you're suggesting, Stephen. Well, I guess I just like quibbling with what it means to be honest. Yeah. You know, because it implies somehow that Reagan wasn't being honest and that Carter was. Well, Maybe the bigger, maybe the the important way to be honest with people is to keep putting the truth into context. Yeah, yeah, right. But I, I'm again, just I don't know why this popped in my head. I remember the didn't Carter do a Playboy interview, an interview for Playboy, right. where he, he famously said, "I have lust in my heart." Yeah, and you know, with, without any real context, and you know, <laughs> that's not necessarily the best thing you want to hear. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> may be true right it may be true but leave but you don't have that's that's you don't have to say that yeah. right he said he said that um he had lusted for women in his heart that's right and that he screwed you know used the euphemism screw this is after you know he came out as a born-again christian and got strong evangelical support in 76 right and uh almost lost it it was on the eve of the election in 76 i think the issue came out a few days before the campaign uh, before the election, and it got a lot of press, and it it really hurt him. It could have hurt him with the electorate, um, but the evangelicals stood by him, and then balked from him within it because he had a conference on the family, which talked about multiple definitions of family in a very in a very way we would do today. You know that, you know, lesbian-headed families or gay-headed families, this sort of thing, which is much more comfortable in our terms than it was 40 years ago, and. Evangelicals balked at that and formed the moral majority, you know, within a year's time. So, and they back, uh, you know, Reagan, who's a divorced actor of all things. Right. right. Yeah, by he the wasn't way, a regular churchgoer like Carter was. Yeah. I, I didn't mean to be critical of uh, Carter in, 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 in any way, suggesting that he was a hypocrite or anything like that. It just, it seemed to me not to be the most prudent way to, yeah. to say what he said. And so, um, 
Hey, uh, Greg, you started off with, you started us off with some great sort of bigger thoughts on on the significance of the Iranian hostage crisis, and this has been a great conversation about Carter. I've learned a great deal about this, um, and maybe to circle back to the Iranian hostage crisis for our last ten minutes or so, uh, more specifically, I, I, I'm struck from the way you all have been describing this with how important and significant it was uh, that the Middle East, well, let me put it this way. The, the, it's, not, it's not so much, correct me if I'm wrong, it's not so much that in the 1970s and 80s, the, the Middle East became important sort of strategically in terms of American foreign policy. I mean, the Middle East had been important certainly during World War II, certainly during the Cold War, right, with the Russians uh, setting up puppet states uh, much less aggressively than they did, of course, in Afghanistan, perhaps. but. But the, but the Middle East had always been strategically important, uh, again, back through World War II and maybe even immediately after World War I or during World War I. But it seems to me that what's, what's really happening in the 1970s is that, that uh, Islamic nationalism is now somehow um, freed from certain circumstances which had sort of kept it beneath the surface to a large extent, and is now erupting. And it and this is it strikes me as something new uh, that Carter has to deal with. There's no real precedent, not to the not in terms of the radical na uh, Islamic nationalism that certainly emerges in Iran. And I wonder if if Carter can teach us anything, uh, or had something to teach future presidents about how to deal with this relatively new problem. Not again that the Middle East was not important before. Or, or was important before, but that that the the really new and uh, and, and uh, potentially disruptive threat uh, or problem in foreign policy is the emergence of radical Muslim nationalism, as we see in the Iranian Revolution, mm -hmm. which Carter didn't seem to be prepared for. But on the other hand, how could he have been prepared for something that hadn't really uh, sort of reared its head before this? So can we can we say something about? The turn of events in Iran and how that perhaps influenced future uh, American foreign policy in the region, uh, certainly under Reagan, maybe even in the post-Cold War world as Clinton. What could Clinton have learned from Carter? Uh, you guys have any thoughts on this? Somebody asked a question along these lines earlier. Um, uh, I mean, I think it's I think it's the crucial it's the crucial turning point in American foreign policy in certainly in our lifetimes away from the European conflict of the Cold War to a much more broader Middle Eastern and now worldwide conflict with radical Islam. Um, Iranian revolution is the start of it. The first state organized as an Islamic Republic um, that would convince the Saudis to clamp down as well. In the 1980s, remember in the 70s, Saudi women didn't have to cover themselves. They didn't have to veil themselves. The Wahhabists uh, who run the, the clerical affairs in Saudi Arabia put, put the gabash on that and forced the, the king to, to, to kind of clamp down on Sharia law and the practice of those sorts of things in, starting in the 80s, early 80s, as a result of the Iranian revolution. And of course, Saudi Arabia and Iran are basically fighting a proxy war today in the Middle East. It's a Sunni-Shia civil war between with these two states basically, you know, playing the predominant role. So it's, it's changed everything, no doubt. And Carter wasn't prepared for it. I don't, Reagan wasn't prepared for it either. We saw everything through the context of states, as Stephen, I think, said at the beginning very well, 
and we didn't understand these non-state actors or how revolutionary the situation was with some of these Islamic movements. Um, you know, we support the Mujahideen in Afghanistan as long as they're serving our interests. But as everybody well knows, after the end of the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan, we do nothing to stay involved in Afghanistan. And so the result is 9-11 and of course our longest war now uh, in Afghanistan itself. So we've, we were used to dealing with Muslim or Muslim or Arab leaders like Saddam Hussein and Assad, the father, Hafez al-Assad and Libya's Muammar Gaddafi. These were secularists. You know, we understood them. They operated in the context of the Cold War. The Iranian Revolution doesn't. The Muslim Brotherhood doesn't. Al-Qaeda doesn't. Hezbollah doesn't. They operate in a different context entirely. And United States policymakers still have trouble dealing with that today. Great point. That's a great point. The other, the other thing, too, I would, I would look at is, I mean, here you see kind of the early attempts, right, to address, um, you know, these, not, the, these um, uh, threats, you know, potential threats to Americans or national security um, uh, early on, right, both in terms of um, Carter and in terms of Reagan, um, that, you know, that, that don't fit into some sort of easy to understand model of diplomacy. And primary, and, and so in some ways, right? I when I, one of the lessons I think you learn, right, from the mistakes and from the problems that occur in dealing with this is um, how how much how, that, and especially when it comes to dealing with with terrorism, um, the the thing is, I, I I think Americans don't fully appreciate the degree to which an executive. Uh, the executive and the military have to be very proactive um, in, especially in, in clandestine operations that, you know, look questionable um, given what has to be done. Um, I'm thinking of today, like drone strikes um, in terms uh, also to, you know, how you deal with what, what they label as uh, enemy combatants, right, that are not really uh, part of a country, but rather more part of a movement. And, it's, you know, you can see there's a lot at stake for the executive to be able to show that they can handle these problems, right, without, you know, revealing a lot of the details. And, I mean, in some ways early on, right, with the Iranian hostage crisis and, and under the, um, uh, with the Reagan administration, you see presidents, right, trying, uh, in some ways trying to handle this as part of their normal uh, official responsibilities and how messy that gets. And it really shows that in some ways, you know, I think, you know, the way George W. Bush put this, right, this is a war that has to be fought in the shadows. And in some ways, I think Americans have to come to terms with that, right? Otherwise, you end up with these really ugly situations, uh, like under Carter. Yeah. I guess I would add to that, that I, it's a war that has to be fought in the shadows, but the logic of it needs to be, uh, needs to happen in public. You know, one of the one of the biggest dangers of the 21st century um, is uh, how will we respond to cyber attacks? You know, is a cyber attack a real attack when it when it begins to have physical um, uh, you know implications in the real world? Um, and uh, we just simply have no. I, I would just say I, I, we have no national consensus on on any of this. You know, not just how do we deal with a cyber attack, but 
how do we how would Americans deal with uh, state sponsors of terror? And it seemed like the Bush administration, the second Bush administration, at least was the maybe the only one to really at least have some kind of a intellectual process or or policy that that attempted to lay this out. But you think back to you know uh, the first Bush administration or Reagan or Carter or Nixon, yeah, you just don't even diplomacy almost by definition is state actors and we have world war one is the is the result of not knowing how to deal with a state sponsor of terror in in a sense and like okay uh iran is a state sponsor of terror but does at what point do we need to go to war with iran you know uh when they're the ones who are uh you know sponsoring terrorists that hijack and blow up planes, et cetera. Um, and there is no consensus, and uh, nor, nor do I see one in the foreseeable future, because I don't know about you guys, but I don't get the impression we're going to have more serious uh, discussions of complex issues in the, in the, in the coming days. Um, but... Uh, I'd say, in a way, the hostage crisis underscores this um, this tension that must be there in a democracy, because this is something that there is part of it that you have to tell the American people, and part of it that you can never tell the American people. Um, you, you look at the debates that are going on right now with congressional oversight of intel, um, and you say this is a very live issue of what does the public have the right to know and what does the what you know what do the sources and methods guys have the right to keep secret and um, again I don't think any fair-minded person would blame Carter for that <laughs> we can blame him for other things but but in terms of being part of this larger group of people who never quite come up with a, 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 a reasonable doctrine, and neither does anybody else. But again, to, again, to add, uh, all great points to you, is to add to the, the, the complexity of the, of the world stage that Carter finds, again, on top, of, on top of all the things you mentioned and Greg and David mentioned earlier, uh, you, have a new, you have a new type of regime, right? Not only do you have now not you know, state-sponsored terrorists, but non-state actors, not, I, the Iranian regime is a new kind of regime, at least new to us, one that we hadn't really dealt with before. Uh, the Iranian revolution shows, I mean, there's even a kind of, in an odd sort of way, there's a democratic element to the Iranian revolution in the right. 1970s because there's popular support. It becomes a theocracy, of course. Uh, well, but, we have these problems. You're, right, you're so right for pointing this out. Let me I'll just stop you right there because you, you, you made a really important point. Democracy, you know, we... we we got to always stop ourselves and remind people that democracy is not the answer for everything. You know, just because something is more representative, um, what was it? Theodore Roosevelt once said, uh, um, you must have great faith in names and institutions to, <laughs> to believe that making something more representative is always the solution. And so, um, just in a sense, preparing the American people to have a more 
you know, uh, I think this, you know, the whole purpose of Ashland is to get people to understand ordered liberty, <laughs> you know, like that it's more than just, hey, let's take a vote and do what everybody wants, you know. So, so um, yeah, you're, I just wanted to stop you and say that you, you made an excellent point. Merely making uh, someplace more representative and then the other thing is I, that we haven't talked about, we haven't touched on this, but the nature of terrorism as a as a uh, democracy killer, um, as a terrorism as a force multiplier, you know, um, that that terrorism doesn't work by killing everyone. Terrorism works by scaring everyone, and you can't really have a you can't really have a functioning um, democracy or call something truly democratic if one side is using violence or many sides are using violence um, because the, I'm, I'm, there's some word economists use to, to explain how this works but uh, oh, we, need, we need an economist on the panel uh, but the, in other words the price for non-participation is so low versus the risk uh, what, what's the word I'm looking for I don't know. Go talk to an economist. Uh. I know. I know what you're. I know what you're getting at. Um, uh, yeah. Again. So it, it just seems to me that uh, really, since World War One, uh, when you think about American foreign policy on the large, on the on the high level, uh, we've lived in a world of democracies and tyrannies or autocratic governments, to use Wilson's term, Woodrow Wilson's term, and the general assumption is democracies tend to be good. And then when it comes to the, the, the state tyrannies, again, still thinking in terms of the state, the, the question for us in foreign policy is, are they good tyrannies or, or are they, are they sorry, are they friendly tyrannies to us or are they enemy tyrannies to us? That was the distinction we had to make. And then you've got Iran after the 1970s. And I think there's just been a lot of confusion well, and clarity and an inability really to articulate that clearly to the public. Let me, let me say, we keep... About it. We keep being, I want to be more specific in my criticism of Carter and this sort of truth-telling thing. Part of leadership is explaining to the American people how you prioritize crises. You know, you, you, must, you must prioritize leadership. And you're not lying to people. If, in, in a way, if you tell everyone that every problem is an 11 out of a 1 to 10 scale, then that's a lie. <laughs> you know, uh, and... Um, Part of what we would consider statesmanship or leadership is this educational function that the president is supposed to have to to tell the American people that we live in a grown-up world um, and we have to prioritize uh, which of our problems we solve first. Um, and not you can't simply roll out of bed one day and proclaim what we're for tomorrow is we want to see the overthrow of every single um, torture chamber dictator in the world. Right, right. And we're going to equally work on all of that at once. You know, uh, it's just, um, if every, what's the old saying? Uh, if, if everything's an 11, then nothing is an 11. Right, right, sure. <laughs> you know, you you have to be able to rank your torture chamber dictators. Right, right. Well, and also, I mean, that, that brings us, too, to the question of, um, 
th uh, thinking about foreign policy today, because the Middle East really forces us, I think, to, to think about this. And that is, you know, uh, if you look at the 20th century, there's been, we, we've tried to reconcile, I think, two incompatible ways of thinking about foreign policy. On the one hand, we, we say, right, that a priority is uh, national interests, right, our, our nation's interests in foreign policy. On the other hand, we seek what is good for other people. Um, and that, that, you know, ever since uh, Wilson, right, that's been the kind of the, the foreign policy is to reconcile our interests, right, with doing what is best uh, for others. And the problem that many of these situations illustrate is it's really not possible to reconcile those two. Either you have to have a foreign policy that starts from the premise of what is good for these for this for this particular people, or you have to start with what is good for us. Um, you know, like Greg brought up earlier, Somoza in um, in Nicaragua. And, you know, I mean, there you have a terrible dictator who's probably more terrible than the Sandinista government you know, that followed. But at the end of the day, right, one, one regime is going to be helpful to us, the other is not. So the question is, which, are you, which is going to be your foreign policy? Because you can't really do both at the same time. Yeah, those are great oh, points. Thank you. Thank you. I was struggling with my unmute button. They kept sticking. Yeah, I, I would just say the one, I think the presidents who have been the most successful are the ones, and this is now me making a partisan uh, political point, so you can toss it out if you think I'm a crazy person. But uh, to my mind, the presidents who have done the best job of this are the ones who have explained the relationship between ideals and interests. That is to say... Um, that we act when it is in keeping with both our ideals and our interests. If it's just our ideals, we don't do anything. If it's just our interests, we don't do anything. But if it's in keeping with our ideals and we and our interests, then we begin ranking the the things around the world that we would like to see happen, uh, and and start going in you know working big to small based on um, ideals and interests. And I'd say that you know the two presidents who maybe did it best from my mind were Eisenhower and Coolidge but uh, obviously those that that would be a that's an interesting uh, uh, <laughs> the, 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 you know I like I said I'm crazy so you got to discount what I say you know weren't they running mates <laughs> <laughs> only in my dreams only you know you know when I go to sleep you weren't out late last night was with Hayward were you I mean you're no yeah I, where are you coming up with this stuff? I don't yeah, know. that's good stuff. That's all good stuff. Um, I, I wanted to. We're really at the end of our time. We have about a minute left, so I hesitate to throw this out there. But uh, I think it was David mentioned the um, uh, the, uh, the the importance of presidential decision making in this new complicated world. Can we take a minute just to say something about Carter's decision to uh, initiate the, host the the rescue mission? Uh, do we know anything about what? Uh, you know, how involved Carter was in the planning of this. Uh, how did he think this through? Um, we know it failed, but, uh, and there were actually more than one, there was more than one attempt, I believe, right? Right. No, this was the only attempt. Oh, there was only this one attempt? Yeah. In this? Okay. In April of 1980. So Carter was obviously involved in terms of the being briefed on what the plan was. It was a Delta Force operation, if I'm not mistaken. And um, Carter was. Carter was supported the operation, thought it was workable because he's being told this, of course, by his defense people 
um, that this is a, a doable uh, plan, which was to land, what, 30 some miles out in the desert of Tehran, drive into the embassy, free the hostages, go back out into transports and fly them off to America. It seems kind of cockeyed, but it seems also incredibly American and optimistic that we are able to do this and we're going to bring it about and we can do it. And it would, of course, be seen as Carter doing something, which I think certainly within, what, six months at, by that point of the Iranian hostage crisis with, you know, uh, Ted Koppel on ABC News every night at 1030, America held hostage day 265, um, <laughs> talking about, which becomes Nightline, of course, after that, since right. there's no other America held hostage after uh, Reagan comes in office and it just becomes Nightline. Right. But, um, you know, all, all of those sorts of things play a role in Carter's, I think, decision to go ahead with the operation. Um, we didn't have a good track record of doing this. The Mayaguez, as I mentioned before, Cambodian uh, American ship taken by Cambodian uh, communists and, you know, Ford going, sending in the Marines and more Marines dying in that operation than were freed um, because the hostages were already freed. I mean, in recent years, anyways, we didn't have a good good chance of doing this. It's, a, you know, go go ahead, fast forward ahead to Zero Dark Thirty and, you know, the right. SEAL Team Six, my God, it's, it's a major change in the way we do these things. But, um, you know, it was just a poorly thought out planned operation, but like I said, it raised Carter's profile and certainly helped him in the polls, which was, you know, it's an election year. I don't know how much, of, I don't know if anybody's ever made that argument about the reason for doing it then. I'm sure it's in his mind, no doubt. That's great. Just think if it would have worked. Yeah, what are the, it would have been amazing. Yeah. I have a couple points before I get, I know we're running out of time, and I really want to get uh, your thoughts on these things. First of all, as I was boning up on stuff to get ready for this, I was shocked at how little there is that's new. I don't, and, um, that, and then second, um, I happened to pick up an old copy of Stephen Ambrose's Rise to Globalism, and he just flat out says that Reagan conspired to not, uh, to not allow the, the hostages to be released, which I, I was shocked at how directly that he made that accusation. Um, he didn't plagiarize it? Yeah, yeah. Well, maybe I maybe he did. Uh, uh, but I, uh, and then uh, third is that nobody ever told the tennis court story. So one of you has to tell the story. Of, of, um, um, well, all the tennis court story is is that Carter was such a detail oriented person that he knew the schedule of the White House tennis courts, whereas Reagan took naps and ate jelly beans. Yeah. Right, yeah. <laughs> Carter also, Carter also, uh, the, the, in the, there's a presidential suite, right, uh, for the op, for the DC opera, right? And Carter would uh, check every evening, right? Uh, he would, he would uh, give, he would uh, create the list for who would be able to have his box that, for that evening's opera performance. That wow. was how much of a micromanager he was. Wow. It's, uh, it's, uh, David, that sounds terrible, but like do it, having done research at the Carter Library, where you have very detailed responses by Carter's on memos having to do with railroad deregulation, which you you know most presidents would yawn at and say, give it to the transportation secretary. Carter not only responded, but also used JC as his initials, which I think was more importantly time to Jesus Christ than Jerry Carter, but who knows? <laughs> well... Uh, do we, do we have to end on that? We have to end on <laughs> Jesus. You bring up Jesus, I guess. Uh, that's great. You're very that's informed. how you end all discussions, right? I wish we could go on for another. I'm sure we can go on. Carter's a fascinating guy. This is a fascinating topic. And 
Uh, as always, I've learned a great deal from, from the three of you. Thank you very much for another lively, interesting conversation. So thank you. Uh, really, really do appreciate it. Um, appreciate uh, it. Very well done. And I also want to thank people who submitted questions. Um, also, I'll remind you really quickly about the email that you'll get with the link for your certificate of participation. Um, hope to see you all in August when we'll pick this back up again with a new series. Uh, the theme next year will be Great American Debate. So the ideas will be pairing uh, two or more uh, historical figures and their speeches uh, over particular issues um, in American history. So. Um, you'll be getting a, an email with some information, uh, should be by the end of this month, uh, which will also include information for how you can sign up for that, that webinar series next year. So again, thanks everybody for joining us. Hope you enjoyed it. I'm looking forward to, uh, to August when we begin again. Until then, take care. Thanks. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs as well as information about future programs at tah.org webinars or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.